This is a Partially Examined Life episode preview. You'll find the full episode available for purchase in the music section of the iTunes Store or at partiallyexaminedlife.com slash store. If you want more than one episode, you can become a PEL citizen at partiallyexaminedlife.com slash membership. listening to The Partially Examined Life, a philosophy podcast by some guys who were at one point set on doing philosophy for a living, but then thought better of it. Our primary question for episode 24 is, what is the nature of God, as communicated through Baruch Spinoza's The Ethics? We're linked to an online version of this, as well as discussion and other information. Please check out partiallyexaminedlife.com. My name is Mark Lintonmeyer, emanating from Madison, Wisconsin. And this is Seth Paskin, RKOing from Austin, Texas. And this is Wes Alwyn Kanatasing from Boston, Massachusetts. Very nice. Kanating? What is Kanating? that? Kanatos. The perseverance to persist exists. Ah. How about we read the uh, fundamental axioms which ground our entire discussion with deductive certainty? Why, there are three of them. We, we try not to assume that our audience knows anything about any of this. And number two, no fair name-dropping instead of actually explaining yourself. If you have a point to make, just make it and don't say, for instance, you would know what I mean had you only read God's Bosom by St. John of the Cross. I recommend the Larry Flint translation of that. Number three, we shall be rigorous and exact in all that we say, except when we are not. Spinoza, what do you guys think? Love it. What a massive, massive, massive intellect. A powerful figure in the history of philosophy, no doubt. Beautiful. So he's a follower of Descartes. He lived just a bit after Descartes and taught Cartesian philosophy for a living for some of his life, right? It's kind of privately. He's not a university yeah, a professor tutor. or anything. Yes. Yeah. Should we give a little bit longer? I've got his Wikipedia page open that he okay. was uh, raised in an Orthodox Dutch Jewish community. So in the Netherlands, his parents had come from Portugal, and in fact, I heard a little bit more background about this from, I kind of want to give a shout out to this before we got too far into this, because this will frame a lot of my thoughts on this, was the uh, Karen Armstrong book, The Case for God, that I have been, oh. I'm about uh, more than two-thirds through now, and I had a blog post about it, I'll put something else up about it, but it's an intellectual history book, it's not a philosophy book, and it goes through, from the people writing the Bible, through every medieval philosopher that you could think of. And uh, Jewish intellectual back then, putting together the Talmud and things, all the way up through the Enlightenment, talking about Newton and Rousseau and Spinoza. And one of the things in there was, was in fact, that atheism, since we're talking about God today, her, her big point of the overall book, I don't want to get too into this, but is that both atheism and the fundamentalism, which atheism objects to, that the new atheists now object to, the big hot topic in philosophy, are both recent cultural phenomena, right? That fundamentalism doesn't mean this is like how people thought in the old days. In fact, fundamentalism, reading the Bible literally and following the doctrines that they do is, for the most part, a 20th century phenomena. And the the emphasis that both of these schools have on what you believe about God, what creed you have, is, again, a very recent thing and really was the Enlightenment. So starting with Descartes and Spinoza is when the turn went to that more, uh, you know, it's less about your attitude and it's more about what propositions you will intellectually assent to. And uh, one of the things in here was that the first real atheists, she said, were the Jews that were in the Netherlands that had fled from 
places like Portugal and Spain, because the, the Spanish Inquisition was going on. And so any, if you were Jewish, you had to pretend to be Christian. So there were some sort of secret Jews there that kept Judaism going, but they couldn't practice any of the rituals so that got kind of divorced from what Judaism is all about, according to her, at least, which is about doing things, not just about having a creed. And so when they went up to the Netherlands, we had a whole, whole community up there. And, and that was kind of like, you know, America is now in terms of, ooh, this, it's the land of free ideas. It's the, the place where the church is not going to come down on you and, and burn you at the stake for something. And that this was the, specifically the Jews there were some of the first authentic, you know, philosophically grounded atheists around. However, Spinoza was not one of, was not an atheist, right? Was, By age 23 being, after um, he had, yeah. so he was, he was raised knowing all this Orthodox Jewish stuff. However, he also had a instruction in the intellectual history of the Roman Catholic Church and just the Christian and other intellectual trends of the day. And then he wrote his first uh, couple papers and put forth this idea that we're going to talk about of God, which is uh, very different than the sort of personal God that makes a lot of laws <laughs> that was popular with the Jewish community at the time. And so the Jewish community, when he was 23, did their equivalent of an excommunication. What is that called? The harem. The I would like a harem at age 23. <laughs> yes, yes. But, well, according to Armstrong, that actually only happened because there was still a lot of pressure on the Jewish community to sort of behave themselves. Like, if you just, you know, if you're just all good Jews, then that's fine. But if there's, if your Judaism is going to give rise to a lot of craziness then uh, the Christian church is uh, going to come down on, on the Jewish community. So they, they were pressured, essentially, into kicking him out. But apparently yeah. he didn't mind this. He was, by this time, you know, a very independent intellectual, and he had denied all the specific legalism that Judaism had become. And he taught, and he supported himself, grinding lenses. And he got offered a university position in Heidelberg, and he turned it down. He didn't want to play that game. He could support himself with his lens crafting. And so then he died at 44 of a lung illness from grinding lenses, probably. So if you choose not to sell out, don't like work in a coal mine instead of <laughs> being a philosophy professor or do something else hazardous like that. That is the lesson I get from here. And so he had only published, you know, a couple of these, the things that got him excommunicated. What was the, uh, the Tractatus that you read, Wes? Yeah, Politico Philosophicus. Yeah, Tractatus Politico Philosophicus. I also read, I looked over his short treatise on God, man, and his well-being, which actually explains some of the bit of God. That's from 1660. That's his first work. The Tractatus is from 1670. So the book we're reading, The Ethics, sort of sums up his whole system. So even though it's called The Ethics... And ethics is the latter part of it. The first whole part is his, him going through his entire metaphysics, his entire ontology. He gives his solution to the mind-body problem. He talks about his philosophy of physics. Like, it's a pretty uh, involved system. And then eventually, after giving an account of the emotions, after he's really given a complete account of what he thinks is human nature and our place in the world, then he gets, you know, what should we do about that? What is the right and the good? And it's a pretty weird system, given that he's a determinist, right? So he can't say, we're free to make ethical choices and you should make the right ones or something. He has to have some more complicated setup of that, which is what we're going to talk about this time. And uh, I guess he was working on that a number of years before his death. While he was working on it, rumors started spreading that he was completing this work that would deny the existence of God altogether. And so that was a scandal. And so he didn't publish right then. And then he died. So they, his friends published this and, and a couple other things the same year that he died, 1677. Now, please summarize the uh, ethics in a few sentences. 
<laughs> I'll let you guys do that. I set it up for you. Death was... <laughs> oh, gosh. So I think the first thing to talk about is this style that he used, which was, I guess, like after the method of geometrical proofs. And it's the quintessential rationalist method in any great philosophical text. It is literally, you know, a step-by-step formal proof, if you will, of his points purely from axioms, definitions, and propositions, which if you were trying to basically devalue the senses and focus on reason and ideas and concepts a priori, whatever, that this would be the way to go about doing it. And I think that's one of the things that I remember when I first read it is all of the difficulty that we have, for example, reading Kant uh, or even Wittgenstein for that matter, and maybe this is a whose you know, who's Tractatus was named after Spinoza's Tractatus. Yes, it's it's an allusion to it at least. But, yes. So actually, I shouldn't put Wittgenstein in the same class. I should say when we read Kant and Hobbes and Hume and Plato and these guys, and you're trying to figure out first what is the claim, and then is the claim valid? What are the assumptions that are being made and so forth? With Spinoza and later on Wittgenstein, the claim is very, very clear. The assumptions are very, very clear. It really comes down to two things. You have to decide whether you agree or disagree with some of the assumptions and and the axioms, or you have to agree or disagree with the definitions that are used for the words and see whether he's using them consistently. So as a rationalist, he's sort of stylistically on his own level. And I think that's one reason why he was so admired by so many other philosophers, is that the discipline that it takes to write in this style and to think this way, the years that it would take to put something like this together, I think all of them appreciated that. It's actually called Ethics Demonstrated in Geometric Order. That's the title on the uh, page we link to. Yes. So that's the first part of it. And then the second part of it is that he essentially... This I find almost amusing, (laughs) but he basically proves the existence of God, oh, I'd say in the first, what, about 20 pages? (laughs) (laughs) The first couple of pages. And it's it's just like, it's, it's almost like it's just, you know, step one on the way to the much larger project. So where a lot of the scholastics have these very elaborate proofs for the existence of God, Spinoza just kind of says, of course. Here, A, B, and C. There, God. Now let's get on to the important <laughs> stuff. Which is well, just... but he's drawing on Descartes' proof and the other yeah. stuff that's been done before him, and kind of, and I, some, I think, assuming that some... his readers are going to be familiar with those proofs, and so he gives them in a very truncated way. Yes, that's true. But it's the fact that he doesn't seem to feel the need to dwell on the subject. If you count, I would have to guess that the word "absurd" comes up in this in the first section of the t- yeah. the first part probably 50 times where he's talking about other people's views. And this is actually what I love about him is that he's just a harsh, harsh critic. The last four pages of each of the sections, for example, where he kind of wanders off into his kind of commentary. He's like, of course I've proved this, but let me just say a few things. It's absolutely absurd to think this, that, and the other thing. It's just fantastic. Yeah, Seth, one just reinforcement of your point about the proof of God. In a way, it's more of a negative because God is going to suck up all of what substance means, right? So he's extracting substance from the natural world, and that's going to have huge ethical implications. Human beings are not going to turn out to be these 
substantial souls and their passions are determined and part of nature. And so in a way, it's like, yeah, it's more of a negative project to say that, you know, the phenomenal world is naturalistic rather than a positive project of saying, here, we need a God. And then God turns out to be nature anyway. Mm-hmm. Well, should we just jump into the God stuff or do you want to give more overview of the arc of the thing or something? I'd say we just jump in because there's too much to, to just give an overview. Yeah. So that was, I guess, the focus for this, even though the bulk of the book and when he actually gets to talking about ethics, you know, he belabors the point in much the same way Aristotle does in his later parts of the ethics that we avoided reading or just skimmed uh, his Nicomachean ethics in the, our past episode, you know, really getting into how all these emotions are built out of other emotions and just this very mechanical system. But since we're not going to talk about that part, the focus on this, I thought really everything flowed from this view that he has of God, which is just from the definition itself. We should start with substance to make the point, because this is a, the point that Wes alluded to, that God ends up being the only substance, right? Substances are not things yeah. in nature. Let me read the definition from the first page here. Definition three. By substance, I understand that which is in itself and is conceived through itself. In other words, that the conception of which does not need the conception of another thing from which it must be formed. Right. And uh, this is supposedly the definition of substance more or less taken from Descartes and from Aristotle. And in fact, I looked up Descartes on substance from the Blackwell Dictionary of Western Philosophy. Descartes' criterion for substance is virtually the same as Aristotle's subject criterion. He defines substance as that whose existence is not dependent on other things. Right. and claimed that there is, strictly speaking, only one substance, namely God, which is going to be Spinoza's point. However, although God is the only uncreated substance, created substances may be recognized because, although they need the concurrence of God in order to exist, they're independent of any other created things, such as accidents or modes. Instead, created substances are the bearers of properties, modes, and accidents. A created substance for Descartes can be a thinking thing, or mind, or it can be an extended thing, or body. So there's right. so one... what he's working off of. So one way to think of substance is just what remains or is stable when you strip away all the properties of something, right? You know, mm -hmm. what is it that is their substrate? And then another way of thinking about it is the end point of explanation, which is sort of where Spinoza's definition three comes in, meaning that you have this causal chain where you conceive of one thing through another thing, and you go on and on and on until you get to sort of the bedrock, which no longer is understood through some lower level cause. And here, I mean, it's kind of ambiguous because cause, right, can mean what you understand something through, and then cause can mean actual, you know, one thing physically causing another in the world. And Spinoza kind of puts those two things together. Right. He says that's how we understand things. Yeah. Right. The way I understand your actions is by understanding that, you know, you're the one doing them and understand something about you and what would bring about those actions if I'm going to give yeah. an explanation of action. Or if I see a phenomena in the world, if I see, you know, footprints on the ground, the way I understand that is to understand who made the footprints. So he thinks that just that's how explanation works. Conception. Yeah, and this is straight out of this is straight out of, out of Aristotle. To understand something is to understand its cause, to understand the why. So which co corresponds to in the sciences, you know, creating general laws about things and saying that everything, for instance, operates according to gravity. Instead of just looking at one instance, you're connecting all the instances under a uh, causal principle. Yep. And so he takes this definition from Descartes and he just wants to make it consistent. He says, you know, forget this uh, distinction between uncreated substance God and created substances. 
really all these created substances. And I guess this is where I see the definition of God is infinite, right? Everybody agrees if there is a God, it's infinite. That's the definition, right? Yeah. At least part of the definition. And that means that there can't be anything that is separate from God. It's not infinite like, ooh, this line is infinite because I can divide it up infinitely many times. No, it is omnipresent. It is all-encompassing. It is infinite in that sense. And so there can't be any separate substances from God. The contrasting, and you wonder, how could there be any other view? And another bit I will steal from Karen Armstrong is that in the third century AD, theologians came up with this idea that God, in fact, created the universe out of nothingness. You know, there was God there and there was the void and he reached into the void and made the world out of the nothingness so that ultimately what the nature of the world is, is nothingness that's touched by God. So anyway, you need some alternative if you don't want to have some view like Spinoza's, if you want to have a completely transcendent God that is separate from you and separate from the material world. I mean, we want to talk about individual bodies and minds, but we shouldn't call them substances because... To understand what a body or mind is, we have to look at, you know, what has caused that? What has caused this body to be here? What has caused, so he talks about this in a couple of different ways, you know, that we have to, if we're giving explanations of individual things, right? This man, why is this man here? Well, he had parents, you know, so there's physical causes, you give an account of that. And there's also just the essence of things. How do we understand humanity or triangleness or something. And all those things he says in some other way rely on this underlying notion of God. Right. So you can't explain anything, he thinks, without referring to an infinite substrate that is underlying them. And then his argument for this is a little weird, which is just that, imagine that there's a, a limited thing. Well, how is it limited? Well, something must be containing it. So think of space itself. Is space infinite or not? Well, if it's not infinite, then there must be an edge of it. It must be sitting in something. So right. if space is finite, then there must be an infinite thing in which it is sitting, the void or whatever. Right. And so that you have to have an infinite substance. And because he defines substance as you can talk about it in itself, you can talk about it without referring to anything outside it that causes it or contains it, then there can only be one thing that is that, which is the infinite substance, which is God. Yeah. And part of that depends, right, on that no two substances can share an attribute. That's an important step, right? So that if God is infinite and he has all the attributes and no two substances can share an attribute, then everything collapses into God. So I sort of imagine this part of the ethics. I always think of sort of something collapsing into a singularity or a black hole or something like that. He's following the implications of the concept of substance through and what you get is this singularity in a way. I think I read somewhere that uh, the substance is basically your metaphysical simple. And I think, just like Wes just said, that if you get down to irreducible metaphysical simples, you have to have some way to explain how they have attributes or properties and how they interact and how they generate each other or don't generate each other. And that's part of the torturous task that you see many philosophers prior to Spinoza going through trying to explain with generating versus non-generating or perfection, you know, that these things generate things, but they have less perfection than the things that generated them and so on. Mm -hmm. And I think Spinoza basically sort of calls them out and says, all those problems go away if you just acknowledge the reality that the concept itself brings, which is that substance becomes one giant, irreducible single. And this is probably what Leibniz argued with him about, or at least one of the reasons why Leibniz had a huge problem with him, obviously. 
is that Leibniz had a bunch of irreducible metaphysical symbols that he tried to figure out. And then he had something that held them all together, not surprisingly, that had three letters and started with a G. So I think Spinoza's solution is really rather elegant because it basically solves a lot of the problems that exist. It's the consequences of what he says of taking this position that people don't like. Mm -hmm. It's not that it doesn't solve any problems. In fact, it's very simple, clear, and elegant. It's what happens to free will and independence and a loving, caring, vengeful, moral God and so on and so forth. So, yeah. Right. So that's the big, just sort of jumping to the big theme here that I wanted to pull out today is if you have this notion of God as the infinite substance that is everything, is the underlying part of everything, then, in fact, I shouldn't even say the underlying part of everything. It's the container of everything. It is everything. Right. Right. And, you know, I don't want to say that God is only nature then. Right. God is nature. In fact, he says God gives rise to an infinitely many things in infinitely many ways or something like that. So he has way more attributes than just the attributes that we know him by through our experience of the world. So he transcends nature, but he is nature for sure. And to me, that makes a lot of sense. If you have the notion that there's an infinite being, then everything you see has to be that being. It can't be, oh, there's the transcendent good part of all this stuff is God, but then there's the, the dirty material things that are corruptions of the divine essence, some version of Platonism. Like, that really doesn't make any sense if you actually believe in God as an infant being. Yeah, and I think another way of saying that is that ordinary things that we see in day-to-day -day life that were classified as substances, right? You know, each of us, prior to Spinoza, would be a substance, he wants to naturalize that. He wants to say, actually, those really don't rise to the level of substance. So I, I think he has good reason. I think one, to mention Kant again, it's that extraction of the metaphysical from the empirical. You don't want to mix those up because you run into a lot of problems. So the sort of noumenal substance really lies at the edge of the periphery. And what you get with human beings now is phenomena, and you get psychology. That's what he'll derive his ethical principles from, rather than the metaphysics per se. The metaphysics is sort of negative. It's sort of delimiting a more naturalistic sphere, you know, with the passions and all of that stuff. And Spinoza is, just before, his life overlaps a little with uh, Isaac Newton. And so another intellectual trend that came out of this Karen Armstrong book is that whether it's sort of religious-oriented philosophers seemingly like Spinoza and Leibniz or the scientists like Newton, they really had this notion, you know, religion and science were very closely tied together, but in this enlightenment way where Newton thought, you know, you can talk about the motions of all the objects by just using Newton's laws, but he still thought something had to push the things to get them going in the first place, right? Somebody had to set up these elegant orbits of the planets around each other. And so God was a completely necessary part of his system, the way he conceived right. it. And so the same thing is going on here with Spinoza, that you can talk about him from his, as this sort of religious mystical figure. Ooh, everything is God. I'm God. There's God here, God there. But you can also see him as, as an enlightenment, somebody who's trying to make science modern, that we don't have to refer to Right. The way he broke from Aristotle was that we need to talk about causation in terms of uh, efficient causation, physical causation, and he even thinks this right. is true in the realm of the mind that we'll talk about, that an idea has its cause, another idea has to cause another idea, etc. But he doesn't want to use the language that Aristotle used of final causation, which is, oh, God set things up so that 
you know, there is a purpose, you know, like we talked about in, in our uh, Aristotle ethics episode of there being sort of a form of man or a, f- a yeah. form of any kind of living creature. And that we can, if we fulfill that form, if we fulfill our potential, then we're virtuous. If we fail to do that, then we're not virtuous. Well, no, there's no form of man in general for Spinoza. That's that. I mean, there's particular chemical, whatever causes within us that move us from point A to point B that make us do the things that we do that make us develop in the way that we do, but shouldn't be referring that to some sort of general form talk of God having purposes. And so just seeing how those two things are connected, that if God is conceived as this infinite thing that is everywhere in all things, then a lot of the attributes that we normally attribute to God, in other words, the way we talk about God having a personality, right? Like, Ooh, I have a, I have a relationship with God. Well, that implies that I'm not God. But no, I'm God just as much as everything else around me is God. You can't really have a relationship in the way you might think with God. God can't yeah. be omniscient. He actually says in this earlier essay, he talked about this specifically, the short treatise on God, man, and his well-being. He says God can't be omniscient because that implies God knows things, right? That implies a difference between the knower and the known, right? That's just what knowledge is. And if right. we're going to put that metaphor onto God, even talking about God having an intellect – we can't mean the same thing by God's intellect that we do about our intellect. Like there's, it's just a fundamentally different thing. We can't understand how God could have an intellect or a personality or anything like that. So therefore God can't have purposes for us that we can fulfill or not fulfill, etc. It really takes the guts out of, even though he's proved, oh, God exists, but like, it's not the God that you thought. It's not the God that his Jewish and Christian friends yeah. thought of. Yeah. He's, he's very harsh about, you know, those who, anthropomorphize God, right? And this is one of the things I think that got him in trouble because you wonder, you know, you can see why he was accused of atheism, right? If you're saying all there is is nature, yeah, you can call that God. I mean, I know he's saying a little more than that, but, um, you know, I think it's a problem once you get rid of the personal God, it becomes a problem for religion, even though at the end of this, he does talk about some sort of religious... I think, yeah, it's a difficult part to say what we're left with of God and Spinoza, you know. Right. Because we're all God, any relationship we have with God has to be some sort of attitude towards ourselves or... Well, we're all... We're all mo- you know, emphasizing... Right? We're, we're all modes, modes of God, of yes. God, yeah. So it's not like each of us is... I think the mode thing is, is important, right? And so that's just... You have the attributes, which are the essences, which are infinite in God, right? The only ones that we are aware of are mind and extension, but they're an infinite number that we don't know about. And then we are modes, human beings are modes of both extension and mind. So the mode part is sort of a particular thing, which I guess partakes of being extended and thinking and stuff like that. Right. So that's the metaphysical structure. Let's not jump ahead there just yet to explain that, because I think it's really critical to emphasize this point that he's taken this idea of substance, sort of pushed it to its logical conclusion, and essentially invented, well, I don't know if he invented, but he created the modern notion of imminence. So by saying that there are not multiple substances that make up the world and getting into all that, he says there's just one substance, God, that underlies everything. And forget about how we're going to figure out how that substance gives rise to all these other things and how they're different and whatever. The point is, is that Mark brought this up earlier. He's effectively destroyed the notion of transcendence, at least as far as God or some concept of God is concerned. God is no longer a transcendent. God is imminent. 
meaning God is, is quote unquote, in everything. That's why people say for Spinoza, God is nature. And that this simultaneously, because the history of Western philosophical thought and the history of Western religious thought all are predicated on the need for something transcendent, whether it's an idea that exists outside or an eternal realm, uh, a form, a form of the good God, all of these things require transcendence. So he, this is really an immensely radical thing that he is saying that is completely going against not just the philosophical tradition, but also the religious tradition. And you can imagine living in the 1650s or whenever it was, even in Amsterdam. <laughs> uh, even in Amsterdam. Where we were smoking pot. They were smoking well, lots of pot. Yeah, Amsterdam wasn't exactly the... Amsterdam was religiously tolerant, meaning that people of multiple religions were allowed to live there without being persecuted, unlike in the Iberian Peninsula. But that meaning doesn't it was mean, like the 70s in San Francisco. <laughs> but it doesn't mean that... You know, at the time, Holland was still Catholic, and the House of Orange ruled the country, or at least ruled parts of what we now know as, as Holland. So getting rid of this idea of a transcendent God was going to get you in trouble with everybody, no matter where he lived or what time he lived in. And I think that's really important. And I, I also think it's just a radical, radical notion mm-hmm. to come up with, because it has all kinds of consequences, ethically and politically, right? And actually, Mark, this is, I wanted to bring up this point. I was going to get around to this. I read a little bit of a book that Gilles Deleuze, who's a 20th century French philosopher, was a big fan of Spinoza, and he wrote a couple of books about him. And in the one I was looking at called Practical Philosophy, he mentions that it was Spinoza's political connections with basically opposition Republicans that got him more in trouble with both the Jewish community and the larger Christian community. It was basically his alliance with the more Republican elements in society versus the monarchist House of Orange that got him excommunicated and all that. Because Spinoza did associate with, like, his teacher, Enden Enden, was an atheist and a Republican of sorts. And so Spinoza's metaphysics is right in line with that approach to politics, which is much more egalitarian and obviously does not support hierarchies, at least in the sense of a traditional royalist. Yeah, that eminence thing, I think, is a very good point, Seth. Although I, I would want to say, again, that we're in God rather than God is in us in the sense that God is substance and we are sort of... Okay, but at the same time, substance... Modifications of that, right? The only real substance, God, does not have parts. So you can't say we're in God like we're in this part of a bowl. Well, I mean, like yeah, there's becomes, some, but, but we are, we're properties in a way. We're modes of attributes. I mean, yeah, you get into all those ontological difficulties, but yes. whatever you want to mean by in. Thanks for listening to this episode preview. I know it stopped just when things were getting really good, so please go download the full episode. You can purchase it in the music section of the iTunes store or at partiallyexaminedlife.com slash store where you can become a Partially Examined Life citizen and get expanded access to our hefty back catalog a heap of bonus content, and earn the right to participate in not-school online discussion groups with other listeners. Go to partiallyexaminedlife.com slash membership for details. If you own a vehicle with less than 200,000 miles and have an auto warranty about to expire or no warranty coverage at all, listen up. 
CarShield has a low-cost, month-to-month vehicle protection plan that covers more parts than ever. Visit carshield.com audio to find out how you could pay almost nothing for covered auto repairs. Drivers who activate this vehicle protection today will also receive free roadside assistance, free towing, and car rental options at no additional cost. Get your free quote today at carshield.com audio. That's carshield.com audio.